lower this or use a stepper on that, and this is much easier. Good morning, church. Or good afternoon. Still trying to get used to that. So typically, uh, when I have the privilege and, and honor of speaking, I like to keep it light. I like to have fun. I like to have a good time while I'm up here. But today, I'm going to try to be serious for one time in my life, as, as my wife would say. I'm going try to try to be a little bit serious. Question for you guys. Have you ever been in a dark place, mentally, emotionally, or even spiritually? Have you ever wrestled with whether it's even worth it to stay faithful? Today, I, I truly want us to dig into the difficulty, the necessity, and even the reward of holding on even tighter to God when circumstances in our lives go from bad to worse. Let us go to God in prayer. Father God, thank you so much. Thank you for your example. Thank you for your vulnerability. Um, and thank you for your patience with us. I pray, Lord, that today we dig deep into your word. I pray, Lord, that you can soften our hearts so that they are receptive, receptive to your word, Lord, and that we truly learn what you have allowed us to learn today um, during the Sunday service, Lord. Please be with every aspect of our service today um, and allow your will to be done. Allow your words to be spoken. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Sometimes faithfulness to God and his word sets us on a journey where circumstances get worse and not better. Sometimes our faith puts us on a path where our situations go from worse to seemingly impossible. The life of a Christian is not always rosy, and it's certainly not easy. During our times of deep despair, disappointment, hardships, at some point in our Christian walk, we may even think and question, God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Can anyone here relate to that? I mean, let's be real. Let's put it out there. Why does God allow most of our difficult problems to go from hard to horrible to just downright unbearable if he claims to love us so much? And I'm not talking about the times when we get ourselves into our own mess. We experience the consequences of those decisions, right? I'm talking about the times in our lives when the pain is real and sometimes even unexplainable. It's like, God, I can handle a little bit of this. I can even take some of that. But this right here is too much. The physical pain, the emotional pain, pain from a friend who might have betrayed you, pain from death, pain from addiction, pain from studying your butt off for a test only to have to repeat the process all over again. Maybe it's a marriage that's not living up to our dreams and expectations. Or maybe it's the dream of expectation of being married that has not yet been realized. It could be a child who has rebelled against you and turned against you. It could be the loss of a job or even the difficulty in finding a job. Frustration with all this stuff and no peace. And sometimes for, for even a lucky one of us, all this peace and no stuff. When the storms of life hit us, they almost appear stronger than God's word. It's during this time that we have to remember that our perceptions and even 
our realities are no match to God's words and his promises. We have to remember that God never leaves us. We were at uh, Nicole's mom's funeral last week, and Nietzsche made a great point. He said, God never leaves us. During the good times and the bad times, God is always there. He never leaves us. When circumstances strike fear into our heart, the question we have to ask ourselves is, where is our faith? God wants us to trust him more than what we see and what we experience. There are so, so many examples of this in the Bible, right? But today I want us to direct our focus to probably one of the darkest and loneliest moments in one young man's life. Today we're going to take a look at the life of Joseph. But I want us to focus on the part of his life that is often overlooked. If we wanted to know more about Joseph, we can read in Genesis, and it's through 37 through 50, I hold all those chapters. I'm going to spare you that this morning and just, and just focus on a particular moment in time. So let me just give you a quick summary so you have an idea of who Joseph is for those of you who are not familiar with him. Joseph was a man who was incredibly gifted by God. His life was filled with some of the highest highs in the Bible and some of the lowest lows recorded in the Bible. God blessed Joseph with the incredible ability to interpret dreams. But he lived much of his life battling betrayal and schemes plotted against him by the people closest to him and by officials in high authority. His brothers plotted to kill him, but later they changed their mind and they sold him into slavery at the age of 17. He was later resold on the Egyptian slavery market to Potiphar, who was one of Pharaoh's officials. Despite these unfair adversities, the Bible says in Genesis 39 that the Lord was with Joseph, so he prospered. Right when it looked like things were on the up and up for Joseph, right when it looked like things were going to get right back on track, his boss's wife tried to seduce him multiple times. Being the man of God that Joseph was, he denied this woman her request, but he was thrown into prison after she lied that Joseph tried to sleep with her. So let's pick up in the story. Genesis chapter 40. Why don't you turn to us? Turn it there with us. Genesis chapter 40. During this time, and I'm giving you the backdrop so you guys can understand and appreciate what's, what we're about to see. During this time, this is about nine years into Joseph's imprisonment. In Genesis chapter 40, starting with verse 1, it reads, Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offered their master, the king of Egypt, offended their master, the king of Egypt, excuse me, Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a dream had a meaning of their own. When they were dejected, so he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in the house, in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, in my dream I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. 
Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put them in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in your hand, in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread, and the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh would lift off your head and impale your body on a pole. And the, third, and the birds would eat away your flesh. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all of his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he impaled the chief baker just as Joseph had said to him in his interpretation. The chief cupbaker, however, did not remember, remember Joseph. He forgot him. Genesis 41. When two years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. Let's stop there. Does anyone catch that? Anyone catch that at all? Did anyone see what just happened? He interpreted the dream, right? He specifically said, please do not forget about me. The dream came to fruition, and he forgot about him. And then it says, two years later. Two years later, two more years. The Bible doesn't tell us what happened in Joseph's heart as he waited day after day, week after week, year after year. It just ends with those depressing words. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but he forgot him. Then look at that place between the last verse in chapter 40 and the first verse in chapter 41. It's a white space, isn't it? A chapter break at best. But that little break represented two years in Joseph's life. Two years locked up as a prisoner. Two more years out of his 20s. Some people would consider that to be the prime of one person's life. The 20s. But these are years that are gone. Research says that Joseph spent between 10 to 12 years of his life in bondage and imprisonment. And remember, at this point, this is year nine. What would you do? Put yourself in Joseph's position. How would you feel? What would you be thinking? God, where are you and why me? What did I do to deserve this? Put yourself in Joseph's cell. What would your response to suffering look like? It's easy to read past these two years because it's not specifically called out in Scripture, right? It's easy to remember how Joseph triumphed later on in the story. But I believe that God does not want us to miss these silent, unspoken years that Joseph endured. Imagine the pain of his brother's betrayal, the separation from his father, the years of slavery, the seduction and false accusation by Potiphar's right the cupbearer who forgot about him, and the agony he felt as he experienced his life wasting away in prison. This leads me to my first point, church. 
do not waste your suffering. I once heard this saying, and I, and I thought it was an interesting concept. Do not waste your sufferings. At some point in life, we're all going to suffer. It's inevitable. We're all going to suffer. And the only alternative to suffering is not living life. So the question shouldn't be, how can we avoid suffering in life? The real question needs to be, will we allow our suffering to destroy, damage, or deepen our faith? During suffering, our souls can either be a gymnasium or a jail. Our hearts can either be, it can become a wasteland or a mission field. The mission field is not always found overseas in an unplanted country or a third world country. Sometimes the mission field exists in the undeveloped and underutilized parts of our heart. And because the heart is a muscle, just like any other muscle, when we toil, when we train, when we work out our heart, it only gets what? Stronger. And I believe this is exactly what is happening to Joseph during these two years and throughout his time in his bondage. Because as we see and as we know, God was preparing him for a purpose beyond his wildest dreams. You see, sometimes we're too focused on coming out on the other side of suffering that we miss the reason as to why God has allowed us to go through suffering. We can't be so much in a hurry for the storm to pass and we miss our opportunity to grow. And in essence, waste our suffering. God is sovereign. He has the ability to use our trials and suffering to refine our faith. In regards to suffering, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, it reads, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You see, trials create the ideal breeding ground to develop godly character. Romans chapter 5, 3 to 4, it encourages us to, to glory, to glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, then character, and character, hope. When I think of Joseph's experience, one quality that needs to be highlighted is Joseph's patience. You see, sometimes as a society, we can be so impatient. We live in a times of instant gratification, and I am at the front of that line. I struggle with being patient. Remember the times when, like, next day delivery was, like, a huge deal? Like, you can order something and get it the next day? Well, now Amazon offers delivery for 25,000 household items in less than two hours. Same day, two hours. I mean, can you imagine people nowadays waiting for dial-up internet connections? Probably not. Can you imagine the teens waiting for dial-up internet connections? What's that, right? Impatience and convenience single-handedly put Blockbuster out of business thanks to Netflix and instant streaming. Even with our smartphones nowadays, people basically have eliminated the need to wait for a cab, go on a date, or even order a table at a popular restaurant. Impatience and instant gratification is all around us. 
our ability to wait has weakened so much. At Disney World and Universal Studios, you can actually pay extra money to cut the line. And it's worth it. I told you, I'm still struggling with this. I mean, but seriously, patience can be a huge battle for us. Am, am, I, am I the only one? I don't want it now. I want it yesterday. That's, that's, a, that's the new motto. God, you're taking too long. You're late. Where are you? I want you to preach and say, God is not late, but he's rarely ever early, and he's certainly not in a hurry about much of anything. Let's turn to James chapter 1. I love, I love how James construct this. This is actually one of my favorite scriptures. The, um, there's like a backstory behind it for me. I remember when I was trying to get with Lauren and she was like, you know what, I, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to memorize the book of James. I was like, you know, how about I help you out? I'll, I'll do it with you too. I, I'll memorize it with you too. So we memorized. I got through one in chapter two and part of three, but then kind of teetered off a little bit. Let's look at James chapter one, verse two to four. It says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the, the testing of your faith, it produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you are mature and complete, not lacking anything. You see, when you fight to endure during hard times, you grow. And growing hurts, Right? That's why we have the term growing pains. I stopped having that at birth. I stopped growing at birth. So I don't know too much about that. Growth, the thing, grow, growing, it hurts, you know? Growing also takes time. God uses times of growth to transform us into the image of Christ that he intended for us to become. You see, God is in the, he's in the business, he's in a diamond business. God is the master gemologist. You guys have heard of the four C's, right? Do you guys know what the four C's are? Color, cut, clarity, and carrot. Well, God's four C's are slightly different. He's more concerned about the cross, our commitment, our character, and our good confession. And what is our good confession? Jesus is Lord. God wants to transform us into precious diamonds, but in order, to, in order for us to become a diamond... There are three key ingredients that all diamonds need in order to be created. It is impossible, impossible to create a diamond without heat, pressure, and time. You can't do it. If you take any one of those things away, or even if you even go on a shortcut on any one of those ingredients, you'll have nothing more than graphite, the same materials that you'll find in a number two pencil. It takes 2,200 degrees of heat squeezed under 725,000 pounds of pressure per square inch and one to three billion years to form a diamond. In a nutshell, it takes incredible amounts of heat, pressure, and time to create a diamond. In Greek, the word diamond means unbreakable. You see, God is in the business of creating diamonds in the form of disciples in the form of Christians. So do you blame Satan for trying to lie and steal in order to take away God's precious crea- creation? 
This is why we have to stop praying for every uncomfortable thing in our lives to go away. We have to remember from Scripture that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. And if God is allowing me to go through this, then let your will be done and help me to grow and get something out of it. Transform me into the diamond you want me to become as I go through this heat, as I go through this pressure, and as I go through this tough time. Church, we cannot waste our suffering. We can't. And I'm not saying it's easy. I'll be the first one to admit it's not easy. If you know me, I I can complain. I'm I'm really good at that, actually. Um, I mean, no one wakes up saying, God, give me the hardest, most struggling situation you got for me. So I can, so you can turn me into a diamond. No, we, we don't, we don't do that, right? But if you've been around for some time, you know that we typically learn and grow the most during times of trial. And these times don't just go away overnight; they take time. And this is exactly what happened in Joseph's life, in Joseph's life, and even our own lives. Turn to Genesis 41 for me, real quick. I want us to, to see the, the rest of what happened in Joseph's life. Genesis chapter 41. Let's start in verse 1. Let's pick right back up. When two years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. Jump to verse 8. In the morning, his mind was troubled, and they were speaking about Pharaoh. So he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today, two years later, I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servant, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream that same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted it for us. Given each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was in Paul. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and was quickly brought, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that you, have, that you hear a dream, and you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Verse 28. After Joseph had interpreted the dream, it is just as I said to Pharaoh, verse 28, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The absence in the land will be will not be the abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has firmly been decided by God and God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of the good years that are coming. Excuse me. 
they should collect all the food of the good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held and reserved for the country to be used during the seven years to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined for the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this, one whom is in spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one discerning and wise as you. You shall be put in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you, said So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh then took his ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put on a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in his chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, Make way! Thus thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. You see, during those years of bondage, Joseph did not allow his suffering to become a waste. He was being refined and transformed into the man that God wanted him to be for God's ultimate purpose. And this is what we must remember. Trials and tribulations that God allows us to go through come with both a purpose and a reward. If we persevere and hold on to God's hand, there's a reward. James chapter 1, verse 12, it reads, and this is an amazing promise for us to remember, Blessed is the man who perseveres on the trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And this leads me to my second point. We got to hold on and we have to endure, church. Question. What would God's kingdom look like if more people held on just a bit longer and people persevered through trials just a little bit longer? How would God's kingdom look like? What would our church look like? It's sad and unfortunate that there aren't nearly enough people who are transformed into who God truly intends for them to be because they don't hold hold on long enough to see the sun come out after the storm. This includes people who have decided to walk away from God. This even includes people who are in the church today. I'm not saying it has to happen all the time, but sometimes we need to be in a struggle or a battle long enough to learn how to better solely depend on God and how to dig into his word. Admit it or not, but sometimes we learn the most about God and ourselves during the hard times, during the I don't know if I can make it times. During, I don't know if I can take this time. Sometimes God allows us to go through these difficult times so that he can use us and work through us to accomplish his divine and all-knowing purpose. We need to learn how to turn our sufferings, church, into blessings. And there's only one way to turn troubles into triumphs. The only way to turn our problems into blessings is to endure. That's the only way to do it. The word endure means to, to suffer patiently to remain in existence, to last, to outlast, to persevere. If we go back to James 1.12, we're reminded of God's promise. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. You see, 
This is something we can take to the bank, church. This is God's promise to us. He assures us that if we endure, we receive the greatest reward he has reserved for those who love him. There is so much that is thrown up in front of us that make it difficult to hold on, that make it difficult to endure. Pain, temptation, Satanism schemes, insecurity, doubt, loneliness, financial hardships. I mean, the list goes on and on. But God tells us and he promises us that our endurance is not in vain. He's got us. We just need to hold on. Turn for me to Hebrews 12. I don't, I don't want there to be any confusion, church, about what I'm preaching today. Suffering is not easy. Again, trials are not easy. Even King Solomon in Ecclesiastes 2 talks about how much he hated life because pain and grief that man experienced sometimes is just unfair. God never promises us an easy lifestyle. In fact, Jesus himself had people seriously consider their decision to follow him before actually following him. He knew it wouldn't be easy. He knew that obeying God would not be easy. He knew that he'd have to die the, the worst possible death. And even himself, he begged God. Jesus begged God three times to take this cup away from me, to take away the responsibility of literally carrying the entire weight of the world's sins on his shoulders and being separated from his father. So how did Jesus do it? How did Jesus go from not wanting to die on a cross to overcoming death on a cross and resurrecting from death on a cross. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the author, the perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus endured the cross by focusing on the joy that was to come, the joy that was set before him. The joy wasn't in it. The joy was out of it. The joy was through it. God wants us to consider it a joy when we face trials, not because the trials feel good. No, we are to consider it pure joy, true joy when we face trials because of what we're going to get out of it. If we learn to endure and hold on the way God calls us to, man, watch out, church. Watch out. We often pray so much and so hard for God to take our problems away. We pray and plead, Father, take this away from me. I can't deal with this anymore. God says, no or not right now. My grace is sufficient. Ask yourself today, what is the one thing in your life right now that you're praying to God? Please, God, take this away from me. Take this away from me, God, please. We see this in the Bible. We see this with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul was a man who was similar to Joseph. He was a great man, and he was specifically chosen by God to do great things. His life and his story is an example that no one is beyond the saving grace of God. Paul traveled all over the world, through Jerusalem, through Asia Minor, through Greece, through Rome, preaching and teaching God's message. In fact, he's credited with writing most of the New Testament. 
But Paul, he endured some tough times. He was stoned. He was left for dead. He was beaten several times. He was whipped 39, with 39 lashes on multiple occasions. He was attacked by an angry mob. He was shipwrecked three different times and even floated out in the open sea for 24 hours. The man was even bitten by a viper. Paul endured great hardships to serve the Lord, yet something tormented him more than all of these hardships. Something was an incredible burden to him. Let's read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, this is Paul, Paul speaking. He says, to keep me from being conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. We see Paul here is very personal, and he's being very vulnerable about what he's going through. He's saying, God, take this away. I mean, put yourself in Paul's shoes. He's probably thinking to God, God, I'm out here working for you. I'm out here giving my life to you. I've been obedient with my life. I've preached the perfect word throughout the entire world. I even preached the word while I was in jail. I know what you're capable of, Father. I'm just asking you for this one favor. Just this one. Just please, God, take this away from me. I didn't say anything when I was stoned. I didn't say anything when I was shipwrecked. I didn't say anything when I was beaten. But I'm asking you for this one favor. Please take this away from me. It's not like Paul's asking like to win the lottery or or to to, to not get a, a parking ticket. No, he, he's praying to God about the very thing that's overwhelming his soul. The one thing that's keeping him up at night. What's the one thing that's keeping you up at night, church? What is the root of your unhappiness today? The one thing that has you thinking and feeling, man, if if this one thing was just different, life would be so much better. Paul prays to God, please take this away. Can anyone here relate to this? I like what I heard someone said one time. They said, we have the right to object, but God has the authority to overrule. We can scream out, objection, your honor, and God is like overruled. But God, God is a lot nicer than uh, Judge Judy. Someone screams out, objection. She's like, shut up! Like, that lady's crazy. So what, what do you do when you pray to God for something that's seemingly good and God says otherwise? Let's continue reading. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8. Three times Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. I delight in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, I am strong. In the original Greek, in the Greek translation, the scripture reads, Suffice for you is the grace of me. Indeed, power in weakness is perfected. Did you catch that? God is telling Paul and he's telling us, I, I'm the grace. I'm all you need. God is not, God is not CVS. 
It's not a situation or process where we just go to him when we have a need. We go to him based on that need. He gives us the power. He gives us the strength. We, we might get encouragement like CVS or Dwayne Reed, a, a pharmacist who would, who would say, take this two times a day and come back or call me after lunch. That's not God. God is the grace. God is the encouragement. God, his presence is the power. All we need to do is to have a relationship, a dependency, an intimacy with him. It doesn't matter what we're going through. Jesus is enough. Suffice or sufficient for you is the grace of me, God is telling us. God doesn't give us what we need and then just goes away. No. God is in us and he is with us. 2 Corinthians 6.16 reminds us, we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and will walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. 1 Corinthians 3.16 also tells us the Spirit of God dwells in you. God is saying, hold on to me. I am all you need. I am all the grace that you need. My power is made perfect in weakness. Your weakness, my weakness, our weakness. When we feel empty, when we feel emotionally, spiritually, physically bankrupt and have nothing more to give, God says, I'm all you need. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Perfect as in complete, whole, accomplished, fulfilled, finished. It's the same term that Jesus used when he was on a cross in John 19.30. It is finished. It is complete. When life goes from worse to unbearable, church, God wants us to hold on a little bit tighter. God wants us to endure a little bit more. Because his grace is sufficient. His grace is enough. We will, we will, it is a promise, we will experience the victory if we do not give up. We will experience the victory if we do not give in. Whether it be in this life or the next, your reward is guaranteed. We just have to hold on a little bit longer, church. And that leads me to my next point. We have to, we have to hold on a little bit longer to see the sun rise in the morning. So we just have to just get ready. We need to get ready, church. If we develop the conviction that we will not allow our sufferings to be a waste and that we will hold on to God and endure until God's perfect timing, church, watch out. In fact, brace yourself. If we resolve to stay faithful until God delivers the victory, church, get ready. It seems as though there are two ways that God likes to work. God, God works slowly and then suddenly. First, he works slowly. Or at least it feels slow to me sometimes. We pray, we fast, we, we serve, we, we toil, and then we do the process all over. We, we pray, we fast, we serve, and then we do it again. So much so that sometimes we even forget what we're praying for and what we prayed for. And then right when you think that nothing is going to happen and that he's not going to do anything, then boom! God delivers the breakthrough. And when God delivers the breakthrough, boy, does he deliver. That's why it's sad. It's just, it's, it truly is sad, church, when we see people give up on God. I can't even imagine how God feels. God's probably thinking, I already told you, I won't give you more than you can handle. And whether sooner or later... 
What I have in store for you is well worth the wait. Please turn to Psalm 105. My wife sometimes calls me weird and um, because I love, I love learning about random stuff. I love it. I love watching Jeopardy at 7 o'clock. I love the History Channel. I even love the Animal Planet. Maybe it's because I, I like animals from a distance. But did you know that the African Impala has the ability to jump 10 feet high in the air? and cover distances greater than 30 feet in one single bound. Yet, these physically marvelous animals can be kept in a simple zoo anywhere in the world with just a three-foot wall in front of them. Three feet, that's all it takes. You can contain an impala with a three-foot wall. Why? Because they will not jump if they cannot see where their feet will land. Spiritually speaking, we can be a lot like an Impala. Created by God to do incredible things. Things that people dream of. To overcome outstanding feats, but turn right back around and kept grounded by a three-foot wall. But when we have the faith to jump, not ignoring fear, but in spite of fear, get ready, church. Get ready for what God has in store on the other side. You see, adversity, it tests our character. But if we're willing to endure and to stay faithful and to learn from what God wants us to learn from and to be molded into who God wants us to become, then church, get ready. I'm telling you, get ready. In Psalm 105, it reads in verse 17 and 19, it said that God... He sent a man before them, before the Israelites. He sent Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with shackles. His neck was put in iron. Till what he foretold came to pass. Till the word of the Lord proved him true. In the New Living Translation, it says in verse 19, that the Lord tested Joseph's character. The king sent and released him. The ruler of people set him free. He made Joseph master of his household ruler of all that he possessed, to instruct his princes as he pleased and teach elders wisdom. Joseph taught elders wisdom. You see, God's reward can't be matched. His timing is perfect. Patience isn't about what you are waiting for. No, patience is how you spend your time waiting. So here's some practicals or useful tips we can use to get ready for God's deliverance and to help us ensure that our times of waiting are meaningful, purposeful, and productive. The first practical, church, we have to redirect our focus. Colossians 3.2, it directs us to set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. When we focus on our shortcomings, our struggles, our hardships, you see, those, those things can distract us from growing in God. Rather than taking inventory, church, of, of what you don't have, let's start focusing on what God has blessed us with. Rather, rather than taking inventory on what's wrong or what's missing, the Bible directs us to focus on what's righteous, what's godly, and what's heavenly. We need to face our weaknesses, but we can't let our weaknesses consume us. 
The second practical, we need to develop the right perspective. Matthew 7, verse 9 to 11. It reads, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? You see, in the midst of hardships, after we pray to God for deliverance or to answer a particular request, we're sometimes left wondering, why didn't we get what we asked for? And we start thinking, is it because we didn't have enough faith when we prayed? Or maybe it's because we didn't ask hard enough? Maybe we're not spiritual enough? Or maybe God just didn't come through in our prayers and maybe he didn't hear us. But this scripture, it helps me at least develop the right perspective about God. You see, Jesus assures us in this scripture that our God is a God who gives good gifts to his children. Our Father knows what we ask for, and he knows what we need. We can trust God. We can trust that he has heard our prayers and that he's, he's considered our requests. And he has decided to give us what's best, the absolute best, based on his all-knowing insight, not the wisdom of our wishes. The third practical, give thanks in all situations. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Be thankful. Be full of gratitude, church. Because this is powerful, whether you know it or not. It's powerful because it's an act of obedience. I believe that God instructs us to give thanks in all circumstances because it helps us take our eyes off of our struggles and it focuses the eyes of our heart on God and his plans for our lives. And then the last practical, church, let's press on. Let's press on. Philippians 3.14. It says, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heaven." heavenward in Christ Jesus. You know why I love this church in Lower Westchester? I love the people here in this region because we are tenacious. We're resilient. We're gritty. We're a gritty group of Christians with deep convictions. We understand the goal. We understand the goal is to make it to heaven. And sometimes we might go off track. Sometimes we might have a crazy moment or two or ten. Sometimes we have our individual struggles, but when it comes to spiritual life or death, we buckle up our bootstraps and we press towards the goal. Church, family, don't stop. Don't ever stop pressing on towards the goal. Keep going, church. As I come in for a landing, I'll end with how I began. Sometimes faithfulness to God and his word, it sets us on a journey where circumstances go from worse to downright unbearable. During these periods of immense heat and pressure, let us remember that God, our Father, He wants to transform us into precious diamonds. So let us, one, let us not waste our suffering. Two, let us continue to hold on even tighter to God. Let us endure And three, let us use these times 
to prepare and get ourselves ready for God's incredible breakthrough. Amen?